This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Spark My Muse. I'm Lisa DeLay, your host, and today my guest is Beth Allison Barr, professor of history at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. And she is also the author of several books. The one we'll be speaking about today is a bestseller, and it's called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Thank you so much, Beth, for being my guest today. Oh, I'm so glad to talk to you. One of the things uh, about your book is that there's a lot of books out there about Christianity, maybe by critics um, or ex-evangelicals, and your book is really for the benefit of conservative Christians and evangelicals from the point of view of one and from the onset you really make it clear that what is meant by biblical womanhood to conservative and evangelical Christians is something we should examine in much more careful ways. And you do this a lot through your history background. Do you want to kind of set the scene for us? Yes. No, that's exactly what I do. And that's exactly who my audience is. Mm-hmm. Um, I was writing, and I think that's also why I've gotten in so much trouble, oh. <laughs> because I think it's um, it's hard to mm-hmm. not read my book and not realize that I still identify mm-hmm. within evangelical circles, within Baptist circles, um, really within very comfortable within a conservative community. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was who I was writing to. And in fact, this book grew out of not only my historical um, profession, but my experiences living in the church where I began to see a significant disconnect between what I knew mm-hmm. about history, what I knew about the Bible, um, and what I saw being taught in churches as biblical. Mm-hmm. And for many years, the disconnect that I experienced, I thought I could live with it. Mm. Um, you know, I thought there's bigger battles. Mm-hmm. In some ways, this doesn't really matter that much. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really affect me and my marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was willing to kind of just kind of ignore it, just put it to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is the reason why I stopped going to women's retreats and mm-hmm. I stopped doing a lot because I just couldn't, I couldn't stomach the actual devotional books that taught this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I just couldn't do that anymore. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, I stepped out of a lot of those things, yeah. but as life progressed, I began to realize the significant consequences mm-hmm. that, um, that the, anom- the things that we would often associate as anomalies, mm-hmm. um, the mistreatment of women, the abuse of women, even like what I had experienced, that those really weren't as anomalous as we thought. Yeah. And that the ideas that women and men were internalizing about women always being under male leadership, mm-hmm. um, that those had consequences mm-hmm. that hurt both women and men. Mm -hmm. And so I finally came to the point where I was like, I can't not tell people that this isn't biblical, that this isn't the, this isn't God. Mm. That was, that was the other thing. It hurts the gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, a lot of the ex evangelical movement, and I've talked with a lot of them and I've had really great conversations with them. Um, but you know, there's so much damage that has been done, Mm. um, by us claiming that God is something that God is not. Mm. And so I, finally came to the point where I had to speak out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what this book is, is me speaking out about what I know um, to help people realize that these ideas we're being taught about women mm-hmm. don't really come from the Bible. Right. We really don't have a good understanding of history. Um, many of us don't. And and I feel like I'm a little ahead of the curve, but your book really talks about <laughs> so many things that I was unaware of, and, and I hope we can dig into a few of them. I wanted to make sure I read a little bit of this, and this is from the um, Brasos 
WordPress website. Just yeah. to give people kind of a, a nutshell of what we're talking about in this book, the making of biblical womanhood, the belief that God designed women to be submissive wives, virtuous mothers, and joyful homemakers pervades North American Christianity. From the choices about careers to roles in local churches to relationship dynamics, this belief shapes the everyday lives of evangelical women. Yet biblical womanhood isn't biblical, says Baylor University historian Beth Allison Barr. It arose from a series of clearly definable historical moments. This book moves the conversation about biblical womanhood beyond Greek grammar and into the realm of church history, ancient, medieval, and modern, to show that this belief is not divinely ordained, but a product of human civilization that continues to creep into the church. Barr's historical insights provide context for contemporary teachings about women's roles in the church and help move the conversation forward. And it also talks about your own story as a wife of a pastor and sheds light on the church Two movement, some of the abuse scandals that are mm -hmm. really um, go part and parcel with these kinds of teachings about women and women's roles. And this is where I hope we can get a little bit into what we're talking about when we mean, when we say complementarian or patriarchy yeah. and egalitarian and some of these words people hear or or we, we use them, but um, what are we saying when we are saying some of those words and what is really meant? Well, I think it's important to note that all of these words, complementarianism, mm -hmm. egalitarianism, these are all very recent words. Yes. Um, and so in some ways, as a historian, I kind of push against people want to put me in various camps and I'm always a little resistant because I know how modern yes. <laughs> all of these terms are. Um, and so both complementarianism and really egalitarianism in the sense we use it today arose in the 1980s. Mm. And complementarianism um, arose in a group of men who were literally having breakfast together. I think they were in Wheaton. Mm. Um, they were at a conference at a hotel in Wheaton and they were um, they were upset about the, I think it was the Evangelical Theological Society, which actually just met in Fort Worth mm -hmm. um, last week. Mm -hmm. And they were meeting, but this was in the 80s, but they were meeting and their conversation was about how to combat the feminist movement that they saw as in creeping into the church. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to reinstate Christian patriarchy, mm -hmm. but they, and make, make it become a primary part of the conservative church, but they didn't like the word patriarchy because it sounded harsh. Mm. So they came up with the word complementarian mm. in which they argue that women and men are created equal before God, but they are created with different roles. Mm -hmm. And the role of men is to lead and the role of women is to follow. Mm -hmm. And that if women and men um, do not adhere to those roles, mm -hmm. that it hurts them, it hurts their relationship with God, um, it hurts the church. Mm -hmm. And so those are really, I think, um, if we think about it in a nutshell, what complementarianism is, mm -hmm. it's just really trying to make patriarchy sound better for the church. Yeah, a rebrand. It's a rebrand of patriarchy, and right. it's a rebrand that puts it into the center of the gospel. Uh, That's really what my book was pushing against. Right, right. And what is happening with, with patriarchy as, as centering it, instead of centering the equality in Christ right. or our mutual submission, as Paul speaks about it, um, it is about limiting power, including social power. And this has, you write, this has consequences in the legal and the justice system in economic power. 
And so the repercussions of, of centering this are yes. extremely far and wide, and they contribute to abuse in the church too. We're centering leaders and, and men or men who are uh, not skilled in these ways to lead. They're just by default leaders. <laughs> and, yes. um, and maybe you can speak to what are we talking about when we speak about patriarchy and limiting power and this, you, you spell it out so well. I believe it's on page 13, what patriarchy is in really specific detail. Yeah. Yeah. When we're speaking about patriarchy, we're really speaking about a power dynamic. When we're speaking about matriarchy, which sounds like the opposite, but it's really probably right. not. And maybe you could just define that a little bit if you don't mind. Yeah, no, that's great. So um, the way that I wrote a lot of this book, mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about how many centuries I covered in this book, it's mm -hmm. really crazy. And the only mm -hmm. way I was able to manage it was because I've been teaching world history from the beginning of time <laughs> until 1500 for, for years. I mean, that's mm -hmm. essentially what one of the major courses that I teach. So, um, and then I also teach a women's history survey, which starts in the Greco-Roman world and moves up through suffrage. So again, a lot of time that I cover. So one of the first things that I have to do when I teach really all of my classes at Baylor is um, that start in the beginning of history is talk about structures that we see forming in human civilization and ones that we see become a continuity that regardless of where we go in time or what cultural differences we see in time, that we see these similar structures um, that have a lot of the same characteristics. And one of these structures is patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And so I often have a classroom of students who grow up in conservative Christian houses um, who usually don't respond well to the term patriarchy. Now, they've mm -hmm. actually started responding a lot better. I've seen a significant shift in my students over yeah. the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. But when I first started, this was a term that they weren't really fond of. Mm -hmm. And so I would have to explain it in a way that would get them open to realizing that uh, the existence mm -hmm. of the structure of patriarchy. Um, so the way that I simply do it is I you know, talk about that it is a legal economic system um, that devalues the work of women. Mm -hmm. And places and always and places women's, um, you know, primary occupation or primary duties as always under mm -hmm. what men are doing. Mm -hmm. And so it privileges male leadership and it minimizes female leadership. Mm -hmm. And so and then my students can look across time and they can be like, oh, well, that's why we never really see there's when women are rulers, like in Egypt with Hatshepsut, mm -hmm. it's an anomaly. Mm -hmm. And when women are rulers, you know, in other parts, they, they see this. And so they can see this structure and we can start, you know, why? Why do all of these civilizations across time, do we see this um, minim minimization of women's leadership? Mm -hmm. um, so that really helps my students if they look at it from sort of that political mm -hmm. and economic. Another thing we use too is talking about the wage law um, and that throughout time, women always make less than men, even for doing the same jobs. And this is just remarkable mm -hmm. um, how much this wage gap has persevered. Mm -hmm. So um, then we all know many of my students too, though, are interested in the concept of matriarchy. And this is something that feminists in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s got really interested in. Mm -hmm. um, you see a lot of conversations about sort of um, early, like, in fact, one of the books I cite is Gerda Lerner, The Creation of Patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And she has this whole chapter that's a little mythical mm -hmm. about, you know, this origin that in the beginning, maybe it was actually women who were in charge. And we have all these goddess myths and all of this sort of stuff. And so this 
um, this is also where we get a lot of the glorification of the Amazon world. You can think about um, the you know Wonder Woman. It mm. actually came from some of these myths about matriarchy. Um, historically speaking, there's no evidence for matriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there's maybe hints and pieces, and we see warrior women, and mm-hmm. we see some you know things like that. But there's really no evidence for matriarchy, which would be the exact opposite. Mm. Um, you know, of patriarchy that there is that women are the ones who are completely in charge and men's leadership is minimized. Mm. That really is a myth. Mm -hmm. And it's a myth that keeps coming up in different cultures. You know, the Roman world has stories about these Amazon women. Mm. Um, But it's always, it's always really sort of this reversal, um, this imagined construct. What I am talking about in the book is not matriarchy, Mm -hmm. because I think matriarchy is just as damaging as patriarchy, Mm -hmm. because what it does is it says that the reason somebody gets to be in charge is not because, um, is not, and the reason a person gets to be more valued than somebody else is not because of who they are, is not because of their characteristics, mm-hmm. is not, it's all because of how they are born, mm-hmm. it's because of their physical body. Mm-hmm. And this also applies to race. This is what we see with racism too. Right. Um, these constructs go right together. Yeah. Um, so what I am actually arguing for um, is simply um, that women and men are not judged as being leaders, as being more valued in their work um, because of their bodies, mm-hmm. um, but simply because of who they are in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And that if we put their value in who they are in the image of God, really everyone is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it levels the playing field. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying that women and men are limited by their sex to what they can do, why don't we just let them do what God has called them to do? Mm. And that is what I am advocating for. This has gotten the name egalitarianism, um, which is, you know, I my hat is off to these women who ha- and men who have been fighting this really since the 60s and 70s. Um, so I have nothing but admiration for like the Council for um, Biblical Equality, et cetera. But we have to realize that this term egalitarianism is one that came up mm-hmm. at the same time as we see complementarianism. And mm-hmm. so it came up in opposition yeah. um, to it. But again, I would agree with its premise that um, women and men are equal before God and are, we shouldn't limit their calling by their sex. I have a, a little bit of problem, and this is just this personal, just maybe it's a cynical thing in me, and maybe I'll have to cut this out of the program. <laughs> but I, I have a hard time believing that egalitarianism is real because we're swimming in a toxic pool of patriarchy. So yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it's great. It's pretty to think maybe that could exist. I just wonder, can it? Is if we're swimming in polluted waters? I don't. No, you, you, no. I don't think you should cut this out because I mean, this is this is. I think this is one of the most damning pieces of evidence mm. for patriarchy mm-hmm. um, is the fact that it is so tied mm-hmm. to the human condition. Mm. And it is so tied, you know, to, and really, you know, people fight, they're like, oh, it's not about power. You know, it's this beautiful vision that God created. And I'm like, <laughs> it's the curse. It's, <laughs> that's exactly I, right. I was just looking at this. And as, <laughs> as I'm reading your book, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I think it's the curse says women will be submissive yes. to men. Wait, doesn't, isn't there a new Adam? Doesn't he defeat the curse? Are we okay with the curse? We're, we're good with the curse. Okay, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> You are so right. That's exactly it. I mean, that was the epiphany. I had many, you know, I was like, that's really what this is. And and so the question, of course, is, is does the church want to be simply what the rest of the world has always been? Mm-hmm. 
you know, that, that to me just really flips it. If Christians are called to be different, Mm -hmm. why don't we look different? Mm -hmm. And patriarchy is a very clear, you know, continuity in world history. And it has, it's, it's never, it's never been good um, for, it's good for some people. Yeah. But not most people. Yeah, exactly. And also, as we draw closer to the time of Christ, you see more parity, you see more uh, equality. And as you get further from the time of Christ, you see more cultural impact of the poisonous culture of patriarchy oozing in to the church culture. And it, you can't help but to think, hmm, who's influencing whom? One of the things I, I thought maybe I could drill down into this is this is just a brilliant piece of your book talking about the history of the protestant reformation and this huge switch that happens where the church is pushed out as the center piece of people's lives and husbands are kind of this de facto priest over women and over their own women i guess and the family because the church is removed as a centerpiece and then suddenly singleness instead of this vowed religious life with nuns and priests singleness becomes a second class situation where it's it's pretty much derided your holiness right. essentially is found in marriage and your mm-hmm. your role as a christian woman is found in marriage and childbearing and there's this huge shift that i think protestants I was very ignorant on this fact, and I think that this moment of history is is incredibly powerful for us to understand in, in our world today. No, I think you're right. And the Reformation chapter was one of the most difficult chapters for me to rewrite. Mm. Uh, to write. I rewrote it several times uh-huh. um, because there is so much historical argument going on. And I was trying so mm. hard because I was trying to s- explain it in a way that people, everyone would read it and mm. understand it and yet still get all of the historical arguments, mm. um, you know, get, get my history correct. Mm-hmm. And so it was actually very challenging to write this chapter because on the one hand, it is not necessarily Reformation theology. Mm that that does this it is you know this is this is a thing uh, there's a lot of debates among women historians about whether the reformation was good or bad for women mm. that's not really the question mm-hmm. the question is how does patriarchy shapeshift mm-hmm. and you know patriarchy exists in the medieval world it exists in the reformation world it exists in the modern world um, but it's not always the same so some went sometimes in some places women are able to do more and push against it in different ways than they are in the past so in the medieval world, because women could um, deny their um, what made them, essentially they could deny their female sex, they could eschew marriage mm-hmm. and having children, mm-hmm. um, they could uh, proclaim a, a religious vocation, mm-hmm. and this would allow them to enable to have the authority of men in many places. And we have, this is, you know, we have preaching women in mm-hmm. the medieval world. We have female leaders who were respected by the male church leaders. Um, and so this is sort of because of this loophole in which women mm-hmm. could become more like men. That's what some of the texts say, that mm-hmm. women and God be men. Um, so this isn't a good thing. Women are still having to deny who they are. Mm-hmm. They are still having to um, become more like men in order to do what God has called them to do. So this, it's still not a good thing for women. But in the Reformation era, what we see happening because of changing economic situations, um, because of changing legal situations, even the beginning of the rise of what we call the nation state, um, where we see everything's getting much more organized, much more tightly organized. 
And with this too, is the organization of the family. And so we see a lot more emphasis being put on women's legal subordination to men. And this aligns really easily with Reformation theology, which removes the priest and puts the, you know, the spiritual authority on the husband. Mm. And so what we see is this very natural alignment between um, Reformation theology or the way Reformation theology is interpreted um, and with these already changing economic and legal structures Mm. that are emphasizing the subordination of women. Mm. And so what we end up with is what, you know, I used Linda Roper's phrase, um, the holy household, Mm -hmm. in which the, um, the ideal state for both women and men is to be married to be within an orderly household where women and children are under the authority of the father. And by having that type of household structure, it increases the viability, the success of the state. I mean, this is actually very Roman. And it also increases, you know, sort of the godliness. Your godliness can be measured in a sense um, by your adherence to this family structure. Hmm. And so there's no place, there's no place for women who don't feel called to get married mm. or don't feel called to have children mm. or feel called to have different types of vocations that are separate from their husbands. Mm. This And this is something we still carry today mm-hmm. um, in the modern church. I mean, there, in the modern evangelical church, there is not really room mm-hmm. for single women. Right. And, and this goes against really what Paul writes about. He talks about being a single <laughs> yes, person, and that's really great because you can devote everything to God and you know, he dignifies it completely. So it's interesting that this is derided and you have, you have a lot of people writing towards this now about singleness and and how uh, the church doesn't have a place for them. And, you know, it's seen as like, oh, poor thing, let's set them up. Who can we set them up with? It's really fascinating how, uh, how the shift happened and and not just that, but I think the the husband has this incredibly undue burden of also like a hermeneutic yeah. for the family. Like, I have to also interpret scriptures as the spiritual leader. They might not be whatsoever gifted in that. Instead of the church being the centerpiece yes. and using history and and using the traditions of the church, now the your prophet, priest, and king for your family is a little bit much. Yeah, no, that's exactly. I mean, if we think about this, uh, you know. Patriarchy is not good for women, but it's not good for these men either. Mm -hmm. Um, You think about the burden, as you just said, that's put on them, and especially men that don't feel called to do this and Mm -hmm. that aren't naturally good leaders. Mm I mean, (laughs) it must be incredibly demoralizing for them. Right. And and you think about these these mismatched marriages where the woman is is super nerd and is great at at this sort of thing and the husband's like you know they they feel out of place and this isn't just a couple marriages this is so many where the gifting is just plain different <laughs> and right it's not yes. their fault that they're gifted differently that's that's not a slight on them god made them different that's really the tragedy you you're having all these people not doing what god has gifted them for and they're being shoved into these boxes. Yes. And it, what a what a huge misappropriation of talent. <laughs> yes. It's just a pity. <laughs> but I love the way you said that. It is this misappropriation of talent. And we also put this hierarchical value, despite what Mm. Paul did. I mean, Paul was always pushing, he was like, you're all part of the body. Mm -hmm. You're all part of the body. Everything's just as important in the body. Mm -hmm. And we've sort of taken that and been like, oh, that's right. 
everyone's just as important, which means women changing diapers in the nursery is just as important and should be just as valued. (laughs) But that's all they can do. They can't do anything else. And men shouldn't do that because that's not men's calling. But Mm. we're saying they're both equally the same. And it's like, that's not the message. That's not exalt. And we're saying that there are, even though everyone's equal in the body, there are some positions that only men can have. And those positions are going to get paid more. And those positions are going to get more prestige and are going to have more control Mm. over what goes on in the church. Mm -hmm. And all of the positions that women are designed for that are just as important don't have any of that Mm -hmm. power control in the church. They don't get to help make the decisions. Mm -hmm. They don't get to help teach. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I mean, it's, we have, we have missed Paul's point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking, we're, and we're all supposed to pretend we don't see that contradiction because it's, yes, it was, I, I was seven years old asking my dad, what, what is this situation? My dad literally said, my dad was a minister. He literally said, well, and he couldn't figure out how to tell me. He just, blur- <laughs> he blurts out, well, I, this is the scary part. He blurts out, well, women are less than men. And I was yes. like, um, you know, it kind of came crashing down and I thought, oh man, I was born wrong. I, I, I really wish I could get an upgrade. In my little head, in my little girl head, I was thinking, oh, I wish I could get an upgrade, a person upgrade, oh, you know, yes. um, because he told it to me exactly like he thought it. And, and that was the truth. And that was the truth that so many men have believed and told me so many men have told me for so many years. Yeah, you're less. It's just, it's just how God did that. I, you know, sorry. <laughs> oh, well. That's exactly and right. Maybe we could talk about how Paul's teachings have been appropriated for um, shoring up and boosting the contemporary patriarchy. He's been recast and, and minimized are his co-ministering with women and featuring women in his books and forgetting Priscilla completely. Let's let's forget right. about her and all her work and, and ministry. It's interesting what you say on page 123. Rather than Protestant reformers reviving a biblical model, they were simply mapping scripture onto preceding secular structure. Paul's writings were used to prop up the patriarchal practices already developing in the early modern world. Yes, that is exactly right. Um, You know, that's one of the things that really struck me when I started reading medieval sermons. Mm. You know, I walked into the world of medieval history with modern Baptist eyes. Mm -hmm. So I began reading these sermons with the framework of the sermons that I was used to. Mm. And, and I, and I know that, and I recognize that. And, but what it allowed me to do, I mean, you know, historians are never objective. We try Mm -hmm. to see things from the viewpoint of the people who live them, but at the same time, it's always hard to remove our own cultural views. Mm -hmm. And so my my Baptist ears were used to hearing sermons about Paul, mm-hmm. hearing sermons about what we call, what Phyllis Tribble calls the um, texts of terror, which are the household codes, oh, right. which are 1 Corinthians 14, you know, women only ask your husbands at home, yeah. um, which, you know, yeah, I mean, all of those passages. And what I found when I began reading medieval sermons is that they're just not there. 
Hmm. Um, and this was, you know, there's reasons for this. There are part of it's because it wasn't in the liturgy. These texts aren't in the liturgy. Part of it too, was it just didn't matter as much to medieval theology. I mean, we do get medieval hmm. theologians who talk about women should be under the authority of men and they use the Pauline passages. So we know it's there and we know that, you know, some women actually talk about this. We hear it in their own words. So they hear it from some of some places, but we also see them very much disregarding it. Like maybe this applies sometimes but it doesn't apply all the times. Mm -hmm. And what we find um, is that for the vast part of the later medieval era is that women were simply not hearing these passages that were telling them, you know, that, or that, that they would have interpreted as sort of spiritual support mm -hmm. for male headship within the home. And I think this made a difference mm -hmm. on how these women, I mean, I think this impacts why we see women moving into leadership roles, claiming that they have the right to speak, mm -hmm. claiming that these passages don't apply to them because they weren't hearing that they applied to them. And then you fast forward to the modern era where you know, if you just go through sermons mm. that are being preached, I mean, think about John MacArthur um, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, even John Piper. And we see how much these few passages, you know, mm -hmm. just really six or seven passages have been forefronted and everything that is taught about the home and family and women's roles are seen only through the eyes of these passages. Yeah. It's the impact is incredible, mm -hmm. and it is no surprise that we miss Junia, mm -hmm. and um, you know, and that we everyone who's reading the ESV sees her, you know, footnoted. Um, you know, she's not one of the she's not an apostle, but she is outstanding to the apostles. Mm. Um, they just recognize her, you know, a bunch of men who say, "Oh, that's a woman serving God." That's what they've reduced her to instead of actually being an apostle. Mm. Um, they reduced Phoebe to a servant, hmm. even though, um, you know, they footnote her deacon and say she's just a servant. They don't do this when they talk about men as deacons mm -hmm. who were considered leaders. And um, we also even see this with Priscilla. I mean, this is mm. actually interesting. Sky Jathani, um, you know, uh, sent me a message not too long ago asking me about uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And he noticed in the KJV that Aquila's name came before Priscilla. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Hmm. And so I started investigating and looking around. And what I found is that, and scholars talk about this, that there seems to be an attempt to to suppress hmm. Priscilla's um, leadership yeah. in which sometimes Aquila is tried to be put before her name hmm. because that would minimize her authority. Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, the text, it's she's first mm -hmm. and that means something yeah. and people understood it meant something. And so they tried to, mm -hmm. they tried to change her. Anyway, it's really fascinating. I'm really thankful he brought that that to my attention because huh. it opened up this whole new area, you know, of seeing how Priscilla has actually been attempted to be suppressed right. to put her under the authority of her husband. Well, it's out and out propaganda. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just going to say is. it, <laughs> yeah. even if you don't want to. That's what we have to understand about the translations in English. When once we're getting, I know there was a there was a guy uh, who who mentioned on on Twitter who was at a bookstore. Um, you know, if the King James Version was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> I heard that all the time. You know, it, I, I, we lived, when we lived in North Carolina, we, we had a great time in North Carolina, but I, I was, I had never lived in KJV only culture before. Oh, yeah. And it was shocking to me. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's when I bought my 1611 KJV 
because, and I still use it today. It's one of my favorite Bibles, Mm -hmm. but it's not the same as the KJV that people use now because they would say, this is the same Bible. This is the exact Bible. Mm. And I'm like, even the KJV has changed over time. Yeah. One of the things I think people are are very typically unaware of, and um, now I hang out with a lot of nerds. (laughs) Right talk to so many authors. And so a lot of people I know, know the difference, but you know, your regular church going people don't know that things get switched around. And you talk about how King James had some political things in mind when he commissioned the translation of the King James. Maybe you can just kind of highlight a few of the things that he wanted tweaked for his his own desires. And and just a, (laughs) a few of the things we might not realize the claims of inerrancy actually go to bolster the propaganda of complementarianism. And I think that's another kind of clobber uh, technique. Right. Maybe you could just bring up translation and inerrancy in this yes. kind of little technique that's kind of this, this little, uh, you know, it's kind of a cheap shot, but people don't know any better. So it would be great if you could explore that. This was one of the most fascinating things to me about the the response to the book. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the the chapter on translation first. That was my very first chapter I ever wrote. The reason I wrote it first is because I was teaching a women's history class that was covering, um, that was one of the things I always talk about in this part of my women's history class. And so I just wrote it essentially from my lectures, from the way mm. that I teach about it. You know, my students always respond, are always just amazed by that when I talk mm. about this in class. And mm-hmm. when we look at the translations, I mean, they get really into this. But what I didn't realize was that most people just don't know this. Most people mm. don't really think about how their translations are made mm-hmm. and what you're right, what inerrancy has done. Mm. I mean, this was part of the propaganda of the ESV. Mm. And I'm sure part of the response to me now, why people are so upset with me is because I've been so honest about what the ESV mm. was. But the ESV touted itself as the best translation Mm -hmm. out there, that this is the closest to the biblical text. This is really, this is the words of the apostles. (laughs) It was really the claim that they made. It's astonishing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And some of the things they were doing, though, you're Mm -hmm. right, are very similar to what we see happening in the 16th century, Hmm. in which um, there's this fun sort of Bible war going on mm. in the 16th century because they realize how important these translations are. And one of the most popular Bible translations in the 16th century is what we call the Geneva Bible. And it was translated um, by some um, zealous folk mm-hmm. who were not very happy with with a monarchy, mm. um, with the divine right of kings, which was a theory that was emerging. Mm-hmm. And they were concerned about the Catholic associations mm. that King James had and his family had. Mm. They translated the Geneva Bible. And in it, they had a lot of um, subversive footnotes ah. <laughs> that um, talked about things that essentially that gave people the right to rise up against mm-hmm. ungodly leaders. Mm. And I mean, they had these really long, they sort of invented the study Bible. Oh. Actually not. The medieval world had mm-hmm. the Glossa Ornaria, which was really sort of the first study Bible, mm-hmm. but they made sort of the first English study Bible, mm. I suppose. Um, and King James was like, he was so upset about this because he saw the influence it was having. Mm-hmm. So he pulled together his own group of translators. They were very good translators. They were all men, of course. Mm-hmm. 
And he gave them the orders to essentially make a translation of the Bible that would compete with the Geneva. Mm -hmm. And he said, no footnotes. (laughs) He said, no footnotes. No, no, those pesky Um, footnotes get people thinking. That's exactly what he said. That's exactly what he said. He said, no footnotes. Um, And and so that's that's what the KJV was. Mm -hmm. It was actually not born in this godly theological you know, let's try to get the Bible to peop- to God's word to people. Mm-hmm. It was born in a political mm-hmm. disagreement in trying to defuse mm-hmm. the growing power of these religious dissidents mm-hmm. who were using the Bible to push against royal authority. Mm. The ESV is also, in some ways, is also politically developed. I mean, they claim that they're not, Mm. but they were concerned about the growing women in seminaries, Mm -hmm. the growing women who are entering the pulpit. I mean, the whole conservative resurgence in the, you know, late 1970s is because we start seeing a lot of women Mm -hmm. being um, ordained and entering and becoming pastors. We have the first SBC ordained woman in 1967. Mm. And so, I mean, it's a kind of a they say it, they say it clearly that they're one of their goals of the ESV is to restore the order of the family hmm. and restore the order of, you know, God's ordained roles for women and men. The ESV study Bible says that it's unapologetically complementarian. Mm-hmm. The ESV is about 90, 92% the RSV, Scott McKnight. I learned that from Scott McKnight. Ah. So they didn't actually change very much. Mm-hmm. But what they did change often relates to women, mm. and it's to to paint a picture of women being under the God-ordained authority of men, mm-hmm. and that this is the way it should be, mm-hmm. and anyone who pushes against this is ungodly. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there's big, big, big statements there. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's it's interesting, and I think I've heard so many times, um, you know, people saying, oh, I got the... I got an ESV. Is that your favorite? That's my favorite because it's the closest yeah. thing. And, yes. and the, the propaganda and the, the marketing works so, so well. And I think it's just important. And, you know, I love going online to read the Bible because I like reading the ESV. I like reading the New Living Translation. I like reading yeah. the King James. I like mm-hmm. reading all of them. And and yes, knowing that there's differences too. and knowing <laughs> and, yes. you know, just be okay with that all the translations you know, have their own editors and viewpoints and publishers and get right. over it. Exactly. That doesn't mean that God's message doesn't get through, but it does mean that people's hands, their errant hands sometimes mess yes. with things. And that plays into this this BS about inerrancy. Like <laughs> my uh, professor in seminary said, it's possible that in, in Hebrew that maybe there's inerrancy but once you get into translation work, things get dicey. And he, he translated First and Second Chronicles in the NLT along with other people. But it's kind of like once you get into translation work, you're making some guesses and you're also having to kowtow to the publishers and the editorial decisions boards that are, exist. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, and if, you know, as I said, I people are like, oh, I have to get rid of my ESV. And I said, well, that's not exactly what I say. I actually have an ESV. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mostly a it's mostly a good translation. You just have to, as you said, you just have to realize that the translators are human mm-hmm. and they made decisions. You know, one of my favorite fads, Bible translation fads that has kind of fallen to the wayside are is the parallel Bible. Oh. In which, you know, there's all you get four translations. Yeah. 
in one, I know they're huge and unwieldy (laughs) and we really don't need them anymore because of Bible gateway and, you know, you can pull up, but my advice, people are like, which, which version do you prefer? And I'm like, I don't really like that question because I don't think you should just read one version. Right. And so, you know, I read the KJV, Mm -hmm. the NIV is the one I grew up on. Mm -hmm. So I'm very partial to it. That's what I memorized everything in is the NIV. (laughs) So I'm very partial to the NIV, which is why I like the TNIV, which I still have. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, you know, I have a variety of Bibles that I use and I wish more Christians would do that. Yeah. Now, one of the things I read on Twitter commenting about your book in, in such a positive way was this one man said, everything in your whole book could get thrown aside and you could defeat complementarianism with one thing only, and it's the heresy of the Trinity. Yes. Which is, this is another thing that ordinary Christians who are not really well-read in theology will probably not understand, but there's a heresy out there that's common, like freakishly, chillingly common in complementarian circles that there is a subordination within the Trinity. This is a heresy that you talk about being taken care of really, really early on in Christianity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would yeah. love for you to explain how this heresy has been propagated. <laughs> in simple terms, this is to me the bombshell. I mean, all the other stuff is fantastic. I love it. And it really it really speaks to me where I am and where I've grown up and everything. And then to me, you get to this towards the end. And it's like, oh, by the way, there's just out and out heresy. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, it's like, boom. <laughs> Truly, I tell, I tell the story in the book that it was pretty late. Um, you know, I keep, I keep telling people I'm a medieval historian. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I really am, was not up on all these evangelical debates mm. and so forth. Uh, um, I really was not this was not my world. I was really resisting Hmm. joining into this. You know, I was, unless things came to my attention. So there was two events that happened within the same year. And one of them was we had a visiting, a a pastor coming to interview for a role. Mm -hmm. And he he was um, talking about what he believed about the Trinity. Mm. And he used this really weird language Mm. that was kind of like, God the Father and Jesus like gave birth to the Holy Spirit. Mm. I mean, which is technically kind, you know, they it emanates from them, but in that discussion, he put Jesus in the role of the wife. Huh. I mean, it was and it gave me, I was like, this is weird. Where did this come from? <laughs> and then, I mean, it was the way he, I mean, technically it was, I was like, I guess maybe he just was trying to explain it in a way that doesn't work. <laughs> Um, because it wasn't necessarily heretical what he was saying and people have said it before, but it was, it was on the edge. It was clumsy anyway. It was clumsy (laughs) and it was not accurate. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after that, I heard this sermon Mm -hmm. from, and I literally was, I mean, everything I said in the book about my reaction to Mm -hmm. it, I remember this so well because I was so shocked where he said that Jesus is subordinate to God, the father. And I was like, um, is anyone else around me hearing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was just, it struck me. And, and so I immediately went home that day and I start. I was like, where does this come from? And that's when I stumbled upon Rachel Green Miller's <laughs> blogs mm-hmm. about eternal subordination of the sun. Mm-hmm. 
And then I saw Amy Bird and I started reading. This is where I first realized about Rachel Green Miller and Amy Bird. And I started reading their stuff. And I mean, oh my gosh, kudos to these women mm. who took on mm. this major heresy in the church, caused it to become essentially a council. Mm. You know, all of these religious leaders got together mm. and it was, once again, was condemned <laughs> heretical um, by these modern evangelical folk. Um, but it was born in this gender theology trying to justify uh, why women belong under the authority of men. Hmm. And this is how far they took it wow. to, to really brand heresy. Old-timey heresy. Old-timey <laughs> heresy. That's exactly it. <laughs> and, and so even though most complementarians do not adhere mm -hmm. to eternal subordination of the sun, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things I've always, you've got to follow a teaching to where it ends. Mm, yeah. And complementarianism ends in heresy mm. um, because the only way to justify it, to really justify it is to build it back into the Trinity, which is what they did. Wow. And because otherwise it's not, it's not a biblical reason. I mean, it, ESS makes total sense in complementarianism hmm. um, because it's how you justify it theologically. Uh -huh. You have to take women's subordination outside of the fall. It can't right, just be right. a product of the fall. Right. And so this is how you do it. You have to build it into God's plan for the universe. And you know, there, there's the Trinity. So let me just ask you one thing about that. People who are uh, not used to this historical heresy issue being solved ages ago <laughs> will say, well, Jesus was listening, you know, he submitted to the will of the Father in the garden, and he was listening yep. and did, did everything the Father told him to do. So wasn't he subordinate? And so I've I've heard this from people who haven't, who don't read theology, who don't understand. It's really easy to be fooled by this. Yes. So tell us, if you can, why is this a heresy? What, how did this yeah. get settled before? There's many variations of it, of Arianism. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, really, I, I put it under the umbrella of Arianism. Some people didn't like that because they said mm -hmm. it's not exactly Arianism. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, Arianism comes in many different forms. Mm -hmm. um, Arianism was in the very early church. It was a clergyman from Alexandria. Mm -hmm. And um, I teach my students. He sort of invented one of the first religious jingles. And his jingle was, <laughs> there was a time when the sun was not. And mm -hmm. so what he argued was, is that God the Father literally created God, the son. And, um, and so, and this made mm -hmm. sense to people because I mean, they're living in a polytheistic world. Uh. Um, you know, it kind of, it's, it makes more sense to the human mind. And so it became very popular. Other theologians, including women, um, who really knew the teachings of what had become the Bible, you know, this is still early on. Mm -hmm. Um, but they, they realized that if you reduce Jesus to being under the authority of God the Father, that essentially salvation no longer works. Because the reason salvation works is because God came to mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. God came to us. God didn't create something else to come to us. Mm. God came to us and died for us so that we could be with God. That's salvation. If God didn't die for us, it doesn't work. It doesn't work theologically. Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah. that, I mean, that's essentially, so anything that makes Jesus less than God mm. is, I would argue, is a form of Arianism. Mm -hmm. And eternal subordination of the son argues that, that Jesus is co-eternal with God. It's kind of like women. Women are um, co in the, you know, in the image of God with men, but mm -hmm. that God, Jesus is created with a separate role 
Mm. And that the Holy Spirit is created with a separate role from God the Father, Mm -hmm. uh, which essentially makes their nature not the same, Mm. which makes them less than God. (laughs) A very, very close cousin to that is that slaves and masters are the same too, but slaves have a role. You know, yeah. uh, people of color have a role, not to to change the the natural order of things where white people aren't on top. But right. of course, God sees them the same. But this was used with slavery for yes, years. It's the same argument. It's kind of like, no, Paul is pretty clear on it. But also John talks about Jesus that emptying himself, being equal with God is not something to be grasped. And he right. emptied himself and came down. That's exactly right. You have to go against John on that to say something different. When Jesus became human, he took on, because he became fully human, and so he took on some of those limitations, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't change his nature, Mm -hmm. uh, his nature of being God. I mean, that's the whole, that was a whole argument. Uh, This is huge. There were several debates about this. It's like, how does this exactly work? (laughs) Um, God is fully human. Jesus Mm -hmm. is fully human and fully God. Right. And so the only time we see Jesus taking doing that limited language when he's human. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I mean, you know, there's a lot of theological conversations about when we see Jesus appearing um, in other times throughout the Bible before, you know, the pre-incarnate Christ and all of those conversations. And so really what this is, is again, it's the problem of patriarchy is that we are limited by our human mind and we are limited by the human condition and we keep trying to make God like us. And and that's, and this is just another way we try to make God like us. Let's squeeze God into our little frameworks and our little limited selves. Yes. And then when it doesn't work, squeeze harder. <laughs> that's exa- that is exactly right. <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> yes. you Yeah. It's really good to disrupt these things that we actually wind up taking for granted or they're, they're so we swim in this stuff and we don't actually question it. And I think that we should at least even if you if people don't agree, they should at least be curious to listen and to, and to try to understand a different point of view, because I know there's going to be people who are going to hear this and be like, oh, no, that's not it at all. Right. Is changing your mind about this going to cost you something? Is it going to cost you power? Is that what's at stake here? Is there some fear here? Yes. Because I think that's actually what the pushback is about, that there's going to be a disruption. And I think that what's so empowering for me and emboldening for me to hear is that it has not always been like this. This is a new phenomenon where women have been shoved to the side and said, hey, little woman, just back up your man. It doesn't have to be like this, and it hasn't always been like this. And I, I find just such great comfort in in your work. Yeah, I'm so glad. I'm glad. Yes, you're you're right. The way we interpret women's role in the church today is um, is historically grounded, not biblically grounded. I was wondering if there is in all this research and and all this now that your book has been out for a while and and been. Um, you know, sometimes maligned and and also celebrated. Um, Do you have any sense how we could course correct within conservative Christianity or evangelicalism or whatever that is now? Because I do sense a a real splitting happening. Is there a kind of course correct for people who want to do better? Do you sense anything possible? Yes. 
Yes, this has been one of the most encouraging things. Um, in fact, I even I just think how well um, my book is doing, um, how amazingly well Jesus and John Wayne is doing. Yeah. Um, we think about books like A Church Called Tove, mm -hmm. and we think about you know even Amy Bird's Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and mm -hmm. Jamar Tismi, the, the Color of Compromise, mm -hmm. and all of these books that have come out. Um, and there's a real hunger for them mm. among now. There's a lot of um, guys in leadership, mostly white guys in leadership, who are fighting against them. Mm -hmm. um, you can even think about the whole Twitter explosion this week with Jonathan Lehman, um, in which he characterized a whole bunch of these books, including mine, as being, um, you know, as being wolves. Oh, right. right. <laughs> it was this really lovely, lovely piece. Also, walking with Satan. That was a, um, a phrase that he used. <laughs> oh, and don't hold so, back or anything. <laughs> don't hold back. No, no, no. <laughs> because they see that this is is destabilizing yeah. um, this power structure that they have built within the church. So on the one hand, we see that incredible pushback, but at the same time, people are still reading and people are reading and reading and talking about it and book discussion groups. And um, I see a lot of hope in this because the way to change the church is by the people of the church um, not really the leaders. Change comes, you know, this type of grassroots change. And that's really what Protestantism is about. Mm. <laughs> comes from people, comes from the people. Um, and and so I think we are seeing that mm -hmm. happening. Um, I don't think it's it's going to get ugly, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. It already has. Yeah. But I also have see a lot of hope because people realize that Jesus is better than what we have made Jesus. Mm. Well said. Yeah, I think we are seeing a a tide shift, like a seismic shift, because I'm thinking about the conversations I was involved with even just two or three years ago. They're really different now. Yes. It's sad to say, but the scandals that have been rife <laughs> through uh, religious and Christian places show the bankruptcy of character and, and show the bankruptcy of of some of these the propaganda and the and the patriarchy and just show it for what it is. And then you have to say, well, is that the best you've got? These are the fruits uh, that have come from some of this and it also have come from just people being humans and making terrible mistakes. Right. You can't help but to think, what if the leadership was made up of what the congregation looked like? Yes. Men and women, different colors of people. And then there was oversight by all sorts of people. Would there have been differences? Would there have been the same cover-ups and passing along dangerous pastors to different places? I think right. not. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like there's a reckoning happening, whether they like it or not. There's a reckoning because of their own stupid mistakes and failings, but there's a reckoning because people can see the truth unvarnished. And then these books like yours come out and, you know, add historic light to the situation and and I think it'll it'll be a refining fire too, like burn away the stuff that should burn away. Yes, that was Michael Bird's article this week that some oh. things in evangelicalism just need to be destroyed. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and it's it's painful to destroy. Yeah. People need to start new careers. Like in my mind, if you're a bad yes. leader, you know, sell cars or insurance. You're like, <laughs> do something else with your time. That's fine. Don't even worry yeah, about it. That's exactly. <laughs> There's other things out there to do. Exactly right. <laughs> you know, I, I just love that women have, they have not been allowed to be in cleric positions of power sometimes. 
So God has raised you up as historians and teachers and truth revealers. It's just the most beautiful spirit-led thing I've I've seen in my lifetime, I feel like. I'm so grateful. Yeah, it's amazing being a part of it. That is very much for sure. It's just amazing. Yeah. Well, is there any kind of final thing you'd like to leave us with or anybody who hasn't read your book yet, anything you'd like to might have left out that you'd like to say? No, I would just, you know, like to encourage people that there is a different way to read the Bible that is Mm -hmm. faithful um, and that has a long historical support um, and that a lot of what we think is biblical really is more associated with modern American culture. Mm -hmm. And it's important as Christians that we learn to distinguish between them. And so I would just encourage folk to to do that, um, to begin questioning and thinking and to become listeners, um, be, you know, quick to listen, slow to speak mm-hmm. and slow to anger. I think if we learn to follow James a little bit, um, that the church would be a better place. The book is called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth by Beth Allison Barr. Beth, your website is bethallisonbarr.com. It is. Is there any other place people can find you easily online? Oh, they can find me on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) For better or for worse, they can find me on Twitter. Um, You know, they can find me on Instagram. Um, They also can find me on the Anxious Bench, Mm -hmm. which is on Patheos. And that's really where the Making of Biblical Womanhood was born. Mm. And so um, I still write pretty regularly on Patheos. And so they can find me writing there and read actually a whole lot of other things on the Anxious Bench. It's a whole bunch of historians um, talking about uh, religious history. This has been an absolute delight, Beth. I just, I'm so grateful that you'd come on. And do you have any books that might be coming after this? Any thoughts or inklings in your mind about what might be next? Yes, I do, actually. I'm sort of, I have two book projects. I thought I had decided on one for sure, but um, I'm now thinking maybe a little bit differently. So I'm, I'm not positive yet, mm-hmm. but I'm definitely going to do a book on medieval Christianity and what we can learn from that a little bit more. Um, I think I'm, you're also going to see a book on being, on being a pastor's wife. Um, probably also out there too. So those are two that I'm working on book proposals for actually right now. So wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been fun.